as we come to dedicate our tithes and offerings and come to the hearing and preaching of God's word, please pray with me. Father, thank you for the abundance of your grace. Um, Indeed, your love is generous. Your gifts are far beyond measure. And so I pray that you would teach us to be a people after your own heart, a generous people, a people who love to give good gifts. We pray that you would use our tithes and offerings um, for your glory, for the advancement um, of your gospel and the proclamation of it and for the care of and good of your people. And as we come now in this portion of our worship service, we hear your word of God. Would you illuminate our minds that we may be convinced of your truth? Make us a ready and willing people to receive your word by faith and to respond rightly to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Our passage this morning uh, will come from 1 John chapter 2. We will continue working our way through 1 John. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6. They're in your bulletin printed there. Um, And 1 John chapter 2. We'll read beginning in verse 1, however. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, When I think about the issues at hand for the believers that John writes to, there is one word that comes to my mind, and the word is that of disruption. These antichrists had lived amongst these believers. We will read about them later in chapter 2. And they sowed seeds of lies, of false doctrine amongst the people. And I could imagine, just because of what we know from elsewhere in the scriptures about false teachers, that they probably also sowed seeds of discord and immorality of various kinds. And and if this is the case for this, these believers, you could imagine that there's a certain kind of disruption and confusion that may have been a reality for these believers, so much so that John writes to them. And he writes to them so that they would not be carried away by these antichrists, but instead that they would know God. And that they would have unity as a church, as those who are united together and united to Christ in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And the result of that was so that they would have real joy and that they would have real assurance in Christ even amidst these disrupting times. 
And this morning, I don't think I have to work real hard to convince us uh, that we often find ourselves experiencing certain kinds of disruption and confusion in our day, right? And we experience disruption all the time. I mean, the world around us suddenly changes and we're disrupted. We experience disruption because of losses of all kinds. We experience disruption because we're hurt or betrayed. We experience disruption in, in sickness and disappointment and suffering and, and, and so many other things. But this morning, our focus today uh, is a disruption that we experience as a result of our sin. And this is where the text is taking us. Failure to live in obedience to God really does disrupt us because a life of sin is not the reason for which we were redeemed by Christ. We were redeemed so that we would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so as we look at this text, what we'll see is that we, we really do find assurance that we belong to Christ as we live obediently to him. Obedience assures us that we really know God. And so what I'm going to do in this first part of this message, we'll take a look at verses 3 and 4, and in the second part, we'll consider verses 5 and 6. Now, when John is writing here, it's actually a continuation of what he had already begun in chapter 1, when he says that the Christian, the one who has fellowship with God, practices what they profess— that they walk in truth and pursue a righteously lived life. And then uh, in verses 1 and 2, as Bill preached from last week, um, John affirms the, the grounds of our obedience, the foundation for our obedience. And the foundation, the grounds, is not us walking in truth and not our righteously lived life, but rather it is the completed work of Christ, specifically his atoning sacrifice in which propitiation is made to God. Whenever the scripture speaks of the righteous lives, the righteous living of the believers, it, it does not exclude redemption, but always rather begins with it. I think of Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He said of this of Jesus, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redemption empowers righteous living. And so it is on this foundation that we move into verse 3 and consider these words of John. John says, and by this, and later in verse 6, he's going to say, by this. What is the this of the passage? Well, in verse 3, the this is if we keep his commandments. And the this in verse 6 is to walk in the same way that Christ walked. So it is by this obedience to Christ that we know. That we know. Here we see John speaking to us of our own experience, of our own assurance of uh, us belonging to Christ. This is, this obedience is proof for ourselves. We know. 
And what we know, what we are assured of in our obedience to Christ is that, as he says, that we have come to know him. It's a knowledge that we know Christ. And and this knowledge that we know Christ, this knowing of him, is not one that's in theory. It's not a meaningless profession, right? But it's, it's as real and as true as what John described in the very outset of his letter. This knowledge is a kind of knowledge of knowing God that is as personal and as intimate as his experience with Jesus when he says that he, he, he heard him with his own ears and he saw him with his own eyes and he touched him with his own hands. And remember, John said that, look, this Jesus that we, ex- we know in that way, in this very real and intimate way, we proclaim him to you. Why? So that you too would have fellowship with us and ultimately fellowship with God. Now think about that. Us knowing Jesus through his word is as real and as true as what John possessed by living with him. Now, sure, it's different, right, than that physical experience. It's a knowledge that comes not by sight but by faith, but it's still just as real. And now he says one of the ways that we gain assurance in our lives that we know Jesus this way is if we keep his commandments. Now, in verse 4, he continues on, and he actually gives the negative side of this same truth. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, living in disobedience to Christ is wholly inconsistent with belonging to him. John said as much already in chapter 1, did he not? Like, those who who walk in darkness while they proclaim to live in the light, well, that's nonsense. And this is is true throughout the Scriptures. This is James. Faith apart from works is dead. This This is Paul. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And this is Jesus. If you obey me, you will keep my commandments. Now, it should be clear that when we look for assurance, we absolutely begin with redemption. We begin by looking at the promises of God. We look at the completed work of Christ on our behalf. That is our anchor that does not move. It is fixed, sure, it is accomplished. And if my life is not in step with that redemption, there's a question that begins to roll around in my mind, right? Borrowing a few words from Bill last week, the driving force of the Christian's life is pleasing 
God. And so if sin is the driving force of my life, then and I begin to question, do I really belong to him? Now, I say that and suddenly I don't feel so good. How about you? Right? I mean, John has been really clear up to this point. Chapter 1, verse 10. We're sinners. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So you are a sinner. I am a sinner. We sin, we lose a kind of confidence. And oh, BT dubs, as the kids would say, I'm a sinner. How then is it that we can really have assurance? It seems hopeless, right? But it's not. Let me remind us of the very first command of the gospel. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, the gospel, that Christ has come, that he has died, that he has rose again, that we might be right with God, is never divorced from the call of repentance, a turning away from our sin and pursuing a life of obedience to Christ, a life marked by our love for God. We really do desire to please him. And the Christian life, it is marked by repentance. And it is so because repentance is always the first move toward obedience. Repentance is a response to the Spirit's regenerating work in our lives. Repentance really is an act of faith. Repentance really is uh, our believing the gospel. And so when we sin, we repent. We cast ourselves upon Jesus, our advocate, who has atoned for our sin, and we turn and we follow him. And by doing this, by this simple yet profound work, we, we gain assurance. Not because we find ourselves to be that impressive and we've come to this conclusion on our own, but rather because we are responding to the work of the Spirit in our lives who's calling us to repent and believe the gospel. And we do so. And we turn. And we say, yes. I'm a sinner in need of mercy. And yes, I have mercy. Salvation in Christ Jesus. Ah, I'm going to follow that. I'm going to go that way. I'm going to live in that truth. And my, my life will reflect the reality of it. That really is something, something beautiful about repentance. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I think about repentance, I, 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 I don't always think beauty, but there's something beautiful about repentance. Because in repentance, it's assuring to us that we really do belong to Christ. The gates of hell are overcome 
through our repentance. The church is built up and established through our repentance. Repentance, it frees us. It restores joy to us. It propels us towards obedience. It reminds us, repentance does, that we're on the same team and in the same family. Repentance is the first move toward obedience and assures us that we belong to Christ. And so, we repent and we believe the gospel. Let me pray. Father, you're good to us, and you've given us your word that we might know you, that we might have life in you, that we might turn and believe you. You've given us Jesus so that we would be reconciled to you. You've given us your spirit that we might come to see ourselves as sinners and turn and cast ourselves upon Jesus. And so now, even in this part of our worship service, would you be at work in us, convincing us of your goodness to us, convicting us of our sin, calling us to cast ourselves upon Christ in in this faith and repentance. Help us now, even as we sing, to grow in our love for you, and may we sing not as a vain and meaningless profession, but as those who truly know you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Please stand as we continue to worship together.
continue in verse 5, 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, when he says that the love of God is perfected, be clear that he does not mean that God's love is imperfect and somehow has to come to perfection. Remember, God is love, and so love is understood. It is defined by God himself, by his very character. It is perfect by his very own nature. And so what he's getting at, what John is getting at here, is that um, as God's love is poured out into our hearts, it reaches its completed work in us when we keep his word, when we obey his commands. And previously I said that the Christian life is marked by repentance, and the Christian life is also marked by growth in Christ, by becoming more and more made in the likeness of Jesus. In theological terms, we use this word sanctification. Um, where he conforms us, purifies us, makes us holy, conforming us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit does this work in us, and he uses various means to do so. And primarily, uh, the means he uses is the reading of God's Word and the hearing of it preached. And when this happens, what the Spirit does is work in us to convince us of the truth of God's Word, of convicting us of our sin and calling us always back to Christ. And the result of this Spirit's work 
is repentance. Living, turning to Christ, living in obedience to him. And through this process, the love of God is perfected in us. It grows and is brought to further completion. Now, theologically, we clarify this process with this term that we say is progressive sanctification. And we use this term and we clarify this because the Bible actually speaks of two different kinds of sanctifications. The first being a definitive kind of sanctification. Christ, he has washed us. He has made us clean by his blood. In the sight of God, because of Christ, our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We get a picture of this in the Old Testament. In the Day of Atonement, where uh, on that day the, the, the sins of the people are symbolically laid on the head of this Azazel goat, and it's led away out into the wilderness to never be seen from again. Our cause for judgment has been carried away by Christ. And thus we are presented blameless to the Father. This is a definitive reality, a definitive sanctification. And we are being progressively sanctified. As the Spirit of God works in our lives to conform us more and more into his image. So the love of God is perfected by the Spirit's work. And then John continues in verse 5. He says, By this we may know that we are in him. Now, the language here of knowing Christ changes, and it's significant for us to think about. Because now, it's not that we know how we know that we know him. Make sure I said that right. It's not that we See, I'm confused just trying to say it. (laughs) Um, It's not how we know that we know him, but it is how we know that we are in him. Now, it's parallel language. It means the same thing, but it's different language. And he says it in verse 6 when he says that we abide in him. It's the same language. This is language of our union with Christ. You see, our intimacy with, of knowing Jesus, of knowing God, is found in our union with him. John Murray wrote a fairly well-known book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and he said this about union with Christ. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. What? Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation? I mean, I'll admit, for the longest time, I really couldn't wrap my head around this statement. I mean, I would have said a lot of other things were the central truth of the doctrine of salvation. And I always wondered, what was it that Murray got that I was missing? And this is what he got. He understood that Christ 
accomplished salvation. That his work, that is his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, even his coming again, secured all that is necessary for our salvation, right? Jesus lived righteous to God that we might be right with him. He, he died to atone for the sins of sinners so that our sin might be washed away, taken away, and God's wrath satisfied. He rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. He ascended on high in order to present us blameless to the Father, and he is coming again to save us to the other most. This is the accomplished work of Christ. This is a an objective, historical reality that Christ accomplished in time and outside of us. Now the question is, how does this objective, historical event that happened outside of us become our subjective, personal reality? And the answer is by our union with Christ. See, the Holy Spirit so unites us to Christ that we possess and experience all the blessings that flow to us as a result of Christ's completed work. You see, John Calvin, he said this in his Institutes. He said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that Christ possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. That is, until we are united to him really is a remarkable thought when we think about it. The scriptures actually speak of our being incorporated into the completed work of Christ, into what he accomplished, making us participants in it. What do I mean? I mean this. When Christ died, we died with him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Colossians 3.3, for you have died. This is a past completed reality. How? By our union with Christ. When Christ rose, we rose with him. Again, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Colossians 3, 1, again, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Again, past completed reality made so by our union with Christ. And when Christ ascended, we ascended with him. We ascended with him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen to this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are past tense realities. These are completed 
actions. You have already, believer in Jesus, have been raised up with Christ. You have already been seated with him in the heavenly places. How? Through your union with Christ. I mean, talk about assurance. That is our assurance. When the Reformed Christian seems to speak with such surety about our salvation, it's for this reason. I have been united to Christ. I already died. I have already risen. I have already ascended with Christ in the heavenly places. What then can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? We are united to Christ. All the blessings that flow from Christ's completed work belongs to us by our union with him. That's why Murray said what he said. Because it's union with Christ is a mainstay of Christian religion. And it's not only a mainstay of Christian religion and the doctrine of salvation, but it's also the anchor of our Christian ethics. You see, the Spirit will do no other thing than to produce the fruit of our being united to Christ. To be united to Christ and to be conformed to Christ are so intimately tethered together that you don't have one without the other. And this is, this is John's point. If one is united with Christ, then you will see the fruit of that reality, and one will suffer in confidence that he abides in Christ if his steps do not follow in the ways of Christ. These are, these are heavy words of John. Words that disrupt us, perhaps. And I think John meant to disrupt us in the right way, right? It should disrupt us. When we look in a mirror and we see our own sin and the ways that we are not walking as Christ walked, it ought to bring confusion to us. It really should grieve us. It shouldn't make sense, and we should begin to wonder, how, how could this be? It ought to disrupt us when we do not obey Christ and faithfully walk as he walked. It ought to disrupt us when we applaud and we excuse sin. It ought to disrupt us when our dialogue with one another is more fitting to Babylon than the kingdom of heaven. It ought to disrupt us when we slander and we gossip and we bear false witness against one another. It ought to disrupt us when we decide to follow our culture and just cancel one another out simply because we don't like what someone has to say about policy or closings and reopenings or 
mask or black lives or protest or news feeds or a political candidate. It ought to disrupt us when others and those around us experience our rage and our unrighteous anger. It ought to disrupt us when we find ourselves indifferent to the cries of the hurting. It ought to disrupt us when we refuse to forgive and rather would rather continue to hold on and to hold our brother or sister in Christ in contempt and shame for their failure. It ought to disrupt us when we are so quick to self-justify ourselves and we, I, am too proud to admit my failures. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit and so it ought to disrupt us. Here's the grace in it. When we experience this disruption, even there, we gain assurance. Because in our disruption, we realize that that is the Spirit's work in our lives, disrupting us and telling us that we are not walking as Christ walked. And so we will find assurance in our disruptions when we look to the completed work of Christ and thus confess our sin, repent, and turn back to him. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we cast ourselves on the righteousness of Jesus and in turn seek to promote his goodness and his righteousness with our lives. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we look to Jesus who is full of both grace and truth and thus we seek for our own thoughts and our own words and our own interactions to be filled with both his truth and his grace. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we rest in the faithfulness of Jesus and thus let our conversations be that which builds up others in Christ in a way that is pure and honoring and good and generous and humble. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we learn to define ourselves by the blood of Jesus and belonging to the kingdom of Christ. And thus, in the midst of our various disagreements, we will still pursue, commit ourselves to pursue a deeper kind of friendship that is rooted in our common union With Christ. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we consider the compassion of Christ and let this compassion move us toward one another, especially those who are hurting. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we learn to lean upon the promises of God as our source of hope and we learn to share and to live out these promises before and with one another. We will find assurance in our disruptions when we remember that 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for the likes of me. And thus find it a real joy to forgive and to show mercy, to give grace to one another to fail. And we will find assurance in our disruptions when we look at the humility of Jesus at the cross and so learn to approach all of life with such a posture of humility. You get the idea, right? By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord. We draw near to you now in Christ Jesus knowing that we have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places, knowing that we've been brought near to the throne of grace in Christ, we come and boldly seek your listening ear. Would you be so gracious to listen to us? Hear us this day that you would respond in your goodness, in your pleasure to us who you chose in Christ from the foundation of the world. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Bring to completion the work of your love that you have poured out into our hearts. Let us be transformed by the truth of your word, by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might know that we are loved by you and in turn love you. Cause us to find joy and obedience to you to live to please you, to honor you, and to walk as Christ walked. And this, to your glory, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand.
to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. And we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. Who was and is. Who was and is and is to come. Please receive this as a benediction from God. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.